Good afternoon. It's Monday the 11th of April 2022, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. Your host today, Mike Robinson, myself, Brian Gerrish. We're delighted to be joined by David Scott, bringing us Northern Exposure from north of the border, and Debbie Evans, UK Column Nursing Correspondent. Uh, we'll get straight on with Ukraine matters then. And uh, well, here they are, both looking down for some reason. Uh, this is, uh, well, our wonderful Prime Minister, Boris Johnson, and uh, the German Sec uh, Chancellor, uh, Olaf Scholz. And they were in Downing Street on Friday to discuss, well, let's see what they said, the West's response to Putin's barbaric invasion of Ukraine. That's what they were there to discuss. So they shared their disgust at the Russian regime's onslaught and condemned Putin's recent attacks. Uh, and they said that uh, they were very concerned about Ukrainian refugees forced to flee their homes. They agreed to work together to ensure those uh, wanting to reach family and friends in the UK could do so quickly. And they agreed on the need to maximize the potential of renewable energy in the North Sea uh, and collaborate on climate ambitions and green energy. Uh, and uh, well, Boris went on to say that he wanted to further deepen the UK's relationship with Germany and intensify its cooperation across defense and security, uh, innovation and science. Uh, and they made the point uh, that uh, there would be, a, at some point later in this year, a joint cabinet meeting between uh, the British cabinet and the German cabinet. Uh, I don't know, David, if I can welcome you to the program. I don't know if you'd remembered that these things happen annually uh, because this uh, was an agreement met, I think it was 2019, uh, as part of the, uh, the sort of... Uh, joint defence initiative between the UK and Germany? Well, we've got something to talk about with joint defence initiatives now, haven't we? Um, and it's very interesting to see Germany, who is obviously supplying uh, the uh, desperately evil uh, Vladimir Putin regime with uh, almost all of its money via purchases for uh, gas, uh, talking about more windmills in the North Sea. Um, I don't think that's going to resolve the problems they face. I wonder whether there might be a little bit of dialogue about weapons supplies, because, of course, the Germans have said we can't supply you with more weapons because we're running out of our reserve war stocks. Uh, so maybe there'll be a little bit of uh, contingency planning to see how they can uh, efficiently get weapons straight from the arms manufacturers onto the, onto the field in Ukraine. That should certainly help, help the conflict. We'll have a bit about that in just a couple of minutes. So that was Friday. Then on Saturday, Boris flew off to Ukraine, uh, brave man that he is, and uh, off he went to Kiev. Uh, I wasn't going to do this to everybody, but actually at the end of the day, I decided we, we should because, because it's important that we all understand the type of propaganda that's being pushed out by uh, the UK government. So uh, let's uh, have a look at what number 10 pushed out about uh, Boris's visit uh, this morning. Over the last few hours, I've been able to see quite a lot of your beautiful country. And it's an amazing country. I've also seen the tragic effects of the war. An inexcusable war. An absolutely inexcusable and unnecessary war. But having been here in Kiev just for a few hours, I have absolutely no doubt, Volodymyr, listening to you, listening to your team, your redoubtable team, I have no doubt at all that an independent, sovereign Ukraine will rise again, thanks above all to the heroism, the courage of the people of Ukraine. Thank you 
very much and Slava Ukraini. Thank you. So what did you think of that? Well, it makes me feel sick, uh, Mike. There's no other way of putting it. This is just nauseating propaganda coming out of Downing Street. And see Boris Johnson. Boris John Johnson can't run this country. We've got destroyed NHS. Um, nothing is working at the moment. And here he is trying to rebuild his image by parading with a man who is supporting uh, right-wing extremist militia and uh, and military it's it's obscene i can't think of i really can't think of any other way of describing it thoughts david well i thought it was very interesting as a propaganda exercise i loved the bit when he said basically uh you can still rise now and be that nation again i i thought that was um you know, to, to be to be quoting to be quoting the Corries was was an impressive thing to do at that moment um I, He's talking about it being an unnecessary war. Well, has it ever been a necessary war? The war that we're seeing there is caused by a failure in diplomacy. And in that failure of diplomacy, the West has played a leading role. The EU has played a leading role. The British government has played a leading role. And the American government has played a leading role. Um, I don't see anyone looking um, to themselves to correct any errors or to, to create peace. It's just, well, it's just the nasty Russians. And this is, of course, at best, only a, a, a small portion of the whole story until they start looking at the whole story honestly. Um, there's not much to be hoped for in the way of peace. Uh, no, sorry. Well, I'd, I just wanted to add, and pumping in the weapons, of course, is ensuring that uh, the young Ukrainians are dying in their thousands and we want to pr uh, prolong the, the, the war. So um, Boris is there with all of his platitudes, but what is he actually doing? He is assisting the destruction, not only of Ukraine, but the present generation of young people. I, I was wondering, Brian, whether he would stand to post uh, while he was in Kiev, but he apparently well, didn't. Well, of course, you're not going to see any of the politicians or, or any of the senior NATO leaders near this conflict because they now have what they've been hoping for for a very long time, which is a battlefield where they can try all their remote toys out. This is what the drones are about. Who is flying the drones that are doing the killing at the moment? Are they being piloted by Ukrainian pilots or are they being piloted by by NATO drone pilots, I would suspect the latter. Um, well, David, uh, over the last couple of weeks, we've uh, mentioned the fact that, you know, if you look at the map of the world at the moment, it's uh, there are large parts of it apparently uh, don't believe in the uh, rules-based international order because they are aligning themselves with Russia. And one of the countries, uh, aside from India, in that, in the in Southeast Asia, at least, is, uh, is Pakistan. And we were talking about Imran Khan uh, and the attempted uh, effort to uh, oust him and the claims from his political party that, that the effort to oust him was coming from outside the country. Uh, have they succeeded? Well, he is gone. Whether he's gone for good is open to debate at this point. Uh, so here we see a photograph of, uh, of his support um, with a... a, a, a uh, a, a photograph honouring him, and uh, uh, and uh, they're out to to um, wave the Pakistani flag and support 
what they see as a leg legitimate government. And they're out in quite large numbers. Um, the next uh, report here is from the Evening Standard. Um, it, it states that Pakistani parliament is set to choose a new prime minister as Imran Khan's ousting sparks huge protests. So this will ultimately, like so many things, be decided on the street. Uh, Pakistan's parliament is set to meet Monday, today, to elect a new prime minister after a week-long constitutional crisis that climaxed with Imran Khan losing a no-confidence vote. So he's pointing to the stance that's, that, that uh, Pakistan has made, which is an independent one, which is not following the American uh, and Western governmental line uh, to isolate Russia and Putin. Uh, and as he's taken that view, he's, he's found himself suddenly without a job, without a country to run. Um, he's uh, going to be replaced, it seems, with uh, opposition leader uh, Sharif, 70-year-old as the younger brother of the three-time Prime Minister Nawaz Sharif, who was barred by the Supreme Court from holding public office and subsequently went abroad for medical treatment after serving a few months of a 10-year jail sentence on corruption charges. Imran Khan um, tweeted out a photograph of huge crowds um, protesting against uh, his removal as Prime Minister, uh, and, and he stated, never have such crowds come out so spontaneously in such numbers in our history, rejecting the imported government led by crooks. Now, I think this is the, the interesting part of the narrative here. This has been pinned on America. This has been pinned on an American, essentially, coup d'etat to remove a legitimate government and impose one more liking to America. Now, whether this is true or not is one question. But the other point worth pointing out is that it that sort of accusation would not have been made a few years ago when American power was greater. greater. The fact that American power is on the wane all across the globe means that their ability to influence events and to influence events without stirring, stirring, up, stirring up opposition and being blamed publicly uh, for events is waning rapidly. We see, once again, more signs of waning American power globally and the instability that inevitably results from the passing of um, one international system uh, while we await the emergence of the new one. Okay, well, um, last week we, we brought uh, James Heapy on screen. Here he is. Uh, this was, uh, we headlined this, Keeping Ukraine Armed, and that's what he was doing because he was uh, hosting the second international donor conference uh, where the UK brought 35 so-called international partners together to decide how much, uh, uh, how many arms they were going to send or how, the quantity of armaments they were going to send to Ukraine. Um, and, well, where does that take us now? Well, at the weekend, uh, Boris announced a further package of £100 million. Uh, so this will be another 800 NLAW anti-tank missiles, additional Javelin anti-tank systems, additional what they're describing as loitering munitions, uh, additional Starstreak air defense systems, uh, and additional non-lethal aid, including ballistic helmets, body armor, night vision goggles. So 100 million pounds, uh, and it's been... Uh, uh, designated in consultation with the armed forces of Ukraine, they say. It builds on the £350 million pounds of uh, military aid and around £400 million pounds of economic and humanitarian aid that the UK claims to have already sent. Um, but uh, that's not all that's been going on. Here is, uh, well, some video from Slovakia. Uh, and, uh, well, they have sent uh, an S-300 long-range uh, surface-to-air missile defence system uh, to Ukraine. 
Um, and uh, well, it, this actually went a couple of days. This video is from a few days old, but they only admitted to having done this over the weekend. Uh, so Slovakia had one S300 battery, which is now gone uh, to Ukraine, leaving themselves with nothing. Um, they said that it's symbolically important because uh, uh, these uh, SAM systems, the serious SAM systems, they say, are treated like jets by NATO and uh, are likely to be sent to Ukraine in larger quantities in the future, uh, surface-to-air missiles, that is. Um, so uh, the radar range of these, 300 kilometers, and the missile range, 150 kilometers. But here is the bit that got me in the, uh, in the press release, Brian. Uh, they said that uh, Ukraine will continue to receive live intelligence from the United States and NATO allies on the positions of Russian planes. Um, and uh, the UK government saying that uh, more typhoons heading over, uh, they're gonna be, uh, together with the eight typhoon station in, in Cyprus, uh, they're gonna bring the number of typhoons in Southeastern Europe up to 14. And of course, they're gonna be taking part in that, in that intelligence gathering operation. But the question I was asking you earlier this morning, Brian, was does that not mean that we are actually in conflict with Russia if we are providing intelligence to a, a, a warring party? Well, there's no question of it, Mike, but of course it's not just the intelligence, it's the fact that you've now moved up long-range surveillance assets to cover the whole of the Ukrainian theater. Um, we know the drones are flying, we know that information from the drones, if they're conducting surveillance missiles, is coming back into the NATO structure and the Ukrainians are being helped out. So the what we've got happening here is the whole of the military picture is being built effectively by NATO. We could say the European Union, but it's NATO will be doing the bulk of the work, especially the Americans and the British. Uh, we're compiling the battlefield picture. We're pumping in the weapons, which are the weapons that are killing the Russians. We are fighting a war. We are at war against the Russians. There's no, there's no question of it. And my key uh, point is that I, uh, I have to say the picture suggests, but the picture strongly suggests that drones being used to launch um, air-to-ground weapons are also being flown by Western pilots. So we're at war. There's no question of it. It's just that the people who are going to die on the ground are going to be the young Ukrainians fighting the battle and obviously the Russians on the receiving ends of UK, US German-French munitions. Um, well, let's just uh, move on to China for a second here because this headline was in the mail uh, this morning over the weekend. China accelerates work on more than 100 missile silos that could house nuclear weapons capable of reaching United States soil. Leaders see buildup as a way to deter America from intervening in the conflict over Taiwan. So there's clearly going to be a conflict over Taiwan. And uh, this is all about uh, making sure that the US doesn't intervene. So uh, the mail here saying China is accelerating its construction on more than 100 missile silos that can house nuclear weapons. Uh, although Beijing has accelerated ex its expansion of nuclear weaponry in recent months, uh, the government claims its plan is only to maintain enough arsenal necessary to ensure the nation's security interests. Pentagon officials say that if China continues developing its technology at the current pace, it will have just over 1,000 warheads by 2030. It's quite an interesting date, that. Uh, we'll come on to 2030 in a second. Um, American intelligence analysts say the most sensitive work in the Chinese silos has been completed, citing satellite images taken in January. Here's one of them. Uh, and uh, pictures above the, uh, a missile silo 
Field in Yuman, which is the one on screen at the moment, a rural area in China's northern Gansu province, revealed that 45 temporary covers were placed over each of the suspected missile silos and they have been removed. So here's the point, though. Uh, why is China doing this? If China is doing this, why are they doing this? Could it be anything to do with the fact that the West seems to have abandoned all of, all of its non-proliferation? Uh, so here is uh, Arms Control Association's UK to increase cap on nuclear warhead stockpile. This is from April last year and a significant departure from an earlier pledge. Uh, the U United Kingdom uh, announced in March that it will raise the uh, ceiling of, on its nuclear warhead stockpiles. Uh, the same in the United States, or at least they're going through an, a modernization program. And of course, the US has pulled out of uh, various non-proliferation treaties in recent uh, years. Um, but then we've got the whole NATO question. And uh, so IISS uh, here asking what's next for NATO and China. This is one of the uh, international relations think tanks. Here's another one, CSIS. NATO's pivot to China, a challenging path. Both of these articles published in June last year. And why were they published in June last year? Because, of course, NATO had launched its uh, NATO 2030 initiative making a strong alliance even stronger. So when the Mail article is talking about uh, Pentagon officials uh, discussing 1,000 warheads by 2030, the fact that they chose 2030 as a date, I don't think, as a date, I don't think is a coincidence. Uh, NATO is reorientating, pivot as the CSIS was calling it, uh, towards China. And so, David, my question then is, when we start seeing more and more of these types of headlines about a, an increasingly aggressive China, uh, rearming itself and becoming a real uh, danger to the world. Why would they be doing that? Could it the fact that the uh, UK and the US uh, have been uh, expanding their nuclear capabilities have anything to do with it? It's one of the factors for sure. I mean, the, the, the position of NATO um, described memorably by Donald Trump as obsolete, um, that should have been true. But what it's actually been, it's been recycled. It's been recycled from a defensive alliance against a genuine ideological and military threat into a genuine ideological and military threat itself, but with um, a very good backstory to, to cover what it's doing. Now it's expanding into China. Now China itself is rediscovering its, its, its imperial past, is, is hugely nationalistic and quite expansionist. So it's probably not taking a great deal of encouragement, but certainly such encouragement as, as has been going has been uh, generated by the West. Um, the huge missed opportunity for having a peaceful relationship with Russia um, that, that was um, thrown away by the eastward expansion of NATO uh, by the exclusion of Russia from that club and the eastward, what, the eastward expansion of NATO's borders, um, has it, has given the message to China um, that it can expect the same. So it's uh, getting ahead of the game with its military build-up, I would suggest. Um, and uh, sticking with NATO for a second then, David uh, Reuters here reporting, well, I think we were probably the first to suggest that this was coming certainly within the British press, at least. Uh, Finland, Sweden set to join NATO as soon as the summer, uh, according to the Times. Yes, we were, we were talking about this uh, some months ago, uh, but now it's made it to Reuters and the Times. Um, and 
uh, if this is correct, uh, and we believe it might well be, uh, this is a huge geopolitical shift. Uh, so Times report here reads, uh, Finland and Sweden set to join NATO as soon as the summer. US officials said NATO membership for both Nordic, Nordic countries was, quote, a topic of conversation and multiple sessions, end quote, during talks between the alliance's foreign ministers last week attended by Sweden and Finland. Quote, how can this be anything but a massive strategic blunder for Putin? End quote, said one senior American official. There's plenty of American officials lining up to tell Putin all the mistakes he's made. Um, the Times continues, Finland's application is expected in June and Sweden's expected to fall. Sanna Marin, Finnish Prime Minister, said that it would be time for Finland to seriously reconsider, this, reconsider its stance on NATO. She said, quote, Russia is not the neighbour we thought it was. Um, and she urged the decision to be taken thoroughly but quickly. Um, she added, I, I think we will have very careful discussions, but we're also not taking any more time than we have to in this process because the situation is, of course, very severe. Um, so that does seem that the, uh, the decision is imminent. Uh, Sweden is carrying out a security policy review that will finish by the end of the next month, mithering the Finnish timetable. Uh, quote, I do not exclude NATO membership in any way, said, Ma said Magdalena Andersson, the Swedish Prime Minister, a fortnight ago. Um, and uh, the Times continues, NATO is making plans to deploy a permanent full-scale military force on its members' borders to prevent a further Russian invasion as it adapts to a new reality. Jens Stoltenberg, NATO's Secretary-General, said President Putin's actions had pro provoked a fundamental transformation of the military coalition, which would reflect the long-term consequences of the war in the Ukraine. So everything is different. All the rules have changed and the West is rearming and expanding once again, it would seem. But I'd just like to add a question in there, David, which is, does Sweden and Finland understand that in the NATO club, there's only two countries which run the agenda. Number one by far is the US and the UK in second place. So if they think they're coming into a club which is amongst equals, in uh, so uh, supposedly providing a defence of uh, Europe, they are very quickly going to discover they will do as they're told. So I think at a national um, level, many countries still do not understand what NATO is fully about, but there is only one nation that controls it, and, and that's the US. And from NATO's position, of course, Brian, this, this is a huge prize because both the Swedish and the Finnish military are very capable. Uh, they're efficient, they're well run, they have a lot of indigenous manufacturing to back up the military as well. Uh, they've been long independent and neutral countries in a very dangerous world and they have armed and uh, developed their military strategies accordingly. These are not simply adding countries and adding territory to the NATO boundaries, they're adding real capability. So from uh, NATO's uh, point of view, this is a, a, a huge win. A, a huge win. And of course, in the case of Finland, you've got a country which has uh, already had significant major conflict with uh, Russia. So I would imagine that there, there are not many people who regard Russia as being a friendly neighbour in Finland. But uh, can we trust reporting in UK? Well, the UK column has been saying uh, for a very long time that we can't because it's clear that certainly the BBC is completely in pocket with the British government. But also we're now seeing that more and more 
newspapers are, are also declaring their true colors. So let's have a look at this little headline and a very interesting picture. This is the mail. Are you moved to help after seeing the atrocities committed in Ukraine? Here's a simple guide to what you can do from welcoming refugees to, do, uh, to donating aid. I was intrigued with this picture because there's been a whole flurry of pictures recently which show pictures of, the, of uh, Russia in these sorts of hues of colour. Um, if, you, if you have a look across the media, I'm sure you'll be able to see uh, what I am seeing, but I was curious about why this particular picture. Uh, but this is what caught my eye, sponsored by the UK government. So we're now fully in the position where the Daily Mail says that it's uh, not only sponsored by the UK government, but when you get to the end of the article, it says working in partnership with the UK government. So if the, if the Daily Mail is working in partnership with the UK government, is it possible for the Daily Mail to also be reporting stories which would be effectively hostile to the UK government? And I'm going to suggest no. No. So what's happening here, of course, is the government is buying the space within the Daily Mail. Daily Mail now bought and paid for another propaganda outlet of the, uh, of the British government. But if we uh, remember uh, what we were talking about the other day, we had uh, the Disaster Emergency Committee on screen because we were showing this link up between 15 so-called international charities and we said they were doing a lot more than first met the eye. Well, of course, if you read the UK, sorry, if you read the Daily Mail article, you'll find that they link back through to this so-called charitable um, aid system for Ukraine. And why does that interest us? Well, um, if we have a, a, a look at the uh, trustees for the uh, Disaster Emergency Committee, one lady that we mentioned was Sue English. Now, she was chair of trustee, so we think it's fair to put a, put a picture on screen. We're not saying this lady's done anything wrong. We are simply interested in what her interests are. And particularly, uh, we're, we're certainly interested because, of course, all these people say they're independent. But if we have a look down at the bottom of the screen, uh, we can see that uh, she chairs the board of the International News Safety Institute another charity working for the safety of journalists around the world. I'm sure that would apply to Ukraine, Mike. I'm sure that there will be a finger in the Ukrainian pie. And she's also a governor of the Westminster Foundation for Democracy. So let's remind ourselves of the, the uh, network which the UK government has set up, which essentially brings UK government soft power into the heart of Ukraine. So we started with a simple Daily Mail article. It linked us uh, straight into the Disaster Emergency Committee. And of course, we've already shown that that is linked through to International Rescue, uh, David Miliband, George Soros, and Open Society Foundation's influence and funding. And uh, we demonstrated last week that articles that had um, exposed several years ago that one of the key drivers for international res rescue was to help facilitate migration of people across Europe and from Northern Africa. So it seems that uh, international rescue operating in Ukraine um, is likely to be doing the same. 
So there's the chair of trustees for Disaster Emergency Committee. And we bring in the Western Westminster Foundation for Democracy. Uh, what can we see from that organization? Well, they're doing lots of good work ensuring effective COVID-19 legislation. And uh, that's been completed. They've been establishing and supporting the Financial and Economic Analysis Office. These are all in Ukraine. This organization is working in the heart of Ukraine, supporting public financial management and governance in Ukraine and supporting inclusive and accountable politics in Ukraine. Before I just finish this diagram, David, uh, we have UK government control being exercised at the heart of Ukraine via so-called charities. Do the Ukrainians actually understand what this deception is about? Uh, well, I'm sure they don't, Brian, because the same, the same trick is pulled in Scotland and uh, across Britain, and the people here don't understand what it's about. The governments fund the charities, the charities give, uh, the charities do the government's bidding, but they can do it in such a way that the name charity, the idea of charity, provides the intellectual cover they need in order to do what they're doing. No one questions it because it's a charity. And they can get in and do things that if governments did them, there would be significant pushback because people would see it for the threat that it is. Right, thank you for that. So we'll say that if we've got UK government links supporting inclusive and accountable politics in Ukraine, that's control over the political side, uh, then we've got public financial management. We're controlling the finances of the country. Uh, if we bring the slide back on screen, let's just add the interesting thing that those four projects that we've shown you, which are supposedly charitable projects, are funded by none other than the Foreign Commonwealth and Development Office. These are British government funded uh, projects. So if we bring the link back to the, uh, the Daily Mail article, the truth of the matter is that now um, independent media is gone. All we've got is, is propaganda for the government, but behind the scenes, the power in Ukraine is being held by UK government funded charities. I don't know how to make it any clearer, Mike. This is, uh, this is not Ukraine as a, as a sovereign government running its own defence, running the war, because the British government is at the heart of Ukraine. Yes, and that was the same in Syria and the same in many other cases. Yeah. Um, OK, let's uh, move over to Germany then. We've got a little bit of video. Thanks for the person who sent this uh, through to me last week. We didn't get a chance to put it on the programme last week. But, uh, well, for the second weekend in a row now, thousands of uh, Russian Demonstrators have taken to the streets in Germany um, because they've been saying that they've been victims of aggression, uh, including you know physical uh, violence and uh, damage to property and so on. Um, so this footage is from Berlin last weekend. Uh, there were protests across Germany this week, including Berlin, Frankfurt, and Hanover. Uh, and so uh, you know there are 1.2 million ethnic Russians in Germany. I think there are 235 of them are actual Russian citizens. Um, and I think there's about uh, 300,000 uh, ethnic Ukrainians in Germany as well, uh, with uh, another 300,000 having arrived since the so-called invasion. There were some counter-protests this weekend, uh, and the police in Germany were putting up fencing to try to keep people apart. 
Um, but uh, certainly the ethnic Russians in Germany finding themselves in a bit of difficulty. And the question then is why? Well, maybe, uh, and again, thank you to the person who sent this to me. Uh, maybe this gives us a clue. Um, so this is uh, a, a document published in September last year from the Institute for European, Russian and Eurasian Studies. It's entitled Far Right Group Made Its Home in Ukraine's Major Western Military Training Hub. Uh, and they're talking about an organization called Centuria. Um, and uh, they say, so anyway, let's see what they say. Uh, evidence uncovered in this paper suggests that since 2018, uh, Ukraine's premier military education institution and a major hub for Western military assistance to the country has been home to an organization called Centuria, a self-described order of European traditionalist military officers uh, that has the stated goals of reshaping the country's military along right-wing ideological lines and defending the cultural and ethnic identity of European peoples against Brussels, politicos and bureaucrats. Now, this, uh, this report is written by uh, Alexei uh, Kuzmenko, and we'll talk about him in a second. Uh, some people might recognize that name. But anyway, let's uh, go on to see what he has to say. The group envisions a future where European right forces are consolidated and national tra traditionalism is established as a disciplining ideological basis for the European peoples. Uh, it goes on, the group led by individuals with tries, ties to Ukraine's internationally active far-right Azov movement has attracted multiple members, including current and former officer cadets of the NAA, now, now serving in the armed forces of Ukraine. Apparent members have appeared in photos giving Nazi salutes and have made seemingly extremist statements online. Uh, one apparent member of the group, uh, then NAA cadet uh, Dubrovsky, um, attended, around, attended an 11-month officer training course at the United Kingdom's Royal Military Academy Sandhurst, graduating in late 2020. During that time, Dubrovsky apparently maintained ties to the group. Uh, that's Centuria. Uh, another apparent member, uh, and then NAA cadet, uh, attended the 30th International Week held by the German Army Officers Academy in Dresden, Germany in April 2019. And there are other examples in the, in the course of the text. Meanwhile, inside Ukraine, they say, he says, uh, the group have apparently had access to American mil military trainers as well as American and French cadets. Uh, as recently as April 2021, uh, the group claimed that since its launch, members have participated in joint military exercises with France, the UK, Canada, the US, Germany, and Poland. Uh, the group claims that its members serve as officers in several units of Ukraine's member military. Uh, these claims appear credible because the group's confirmed presence in the NAA and the fact that some apparent members likely joined armed forces of Ukraine units after graduating between 2019 and 2021. Uh, the group has strong ties to Ukraine's far-right Azov movement, has promoted Azov to NAA cadets, and credibly claimed that its members lectured in the Azov Regiment of the National Guard, the military wing of the Azov movement. Uh, when reached for commentary, uh, for a comment about uh, Centuria's activities, apparent leaders and ideology, the National Army Academy denied that the group operated within the institution and stated that its probe into the group's alleged activities had turned up new, no evidence of such activities, but evidence collected in this paper firmly places the group in the academy. Uh, reached for comment, uh, Ukraine's Ministry of Defense stated it does not screen those entering the military or military cadets for extremist views and ties. So just think about that. Ukraine's Ministry of Defense stated that it does not screen those entering the military or military cadets for extremist views and ties. Meanwhile, several Western governments involved in training and arming Ukrainian troops stated in response to the author's request that Ukraine is responsible for vetting 
Ukrainian soldiers trained by the West, but the Ukrainian Ministry of Defence says it doesn't carry out that vetting. Right, I just want to bring in here, Mike, that I think it was about two years ago we showed on screen in one of the UK column news a brochure from the British Army which had a table uh, to apparently allow you to, uh, to identify right-wing extremism which would not be tolerated in the, uh, in the British military. So the British Army put out a leaflet uh, through servicemen, but also, of course, to service families, where people could look at the individual boxes and identify language and behavior and connections and social media that would mean somebody was a right-wing extremist. And the army was stating at the time that we won't tolerate this sort of behavior and this document is indicating that we're fully in bed with exactly that sort of behavior. Right. And uh, so coming back to this document, then it goes on to say, as the author reached out to Centuria, its apparent members in the NAA for comment, the group and individuals linked to it took steps to uh, remove portions of their online presence. The author preserved archived copies of the group's statements, pages, uh, pages operated by the group and its apparent members. So uh, I think, you know, everybody should read this uh, paper. Um, now, it is by uh, this uh, person, uh, Alexei Kuzmenko. Um, so who is he? Well, in fact, in the past, he has written for Bellingcat, amongst others. Uh, and I just thought this was an interesting, I think this is his most recent article from 2018 with Bellingcat. Uh, and it's uh, entitled, Defend the White Race, American Extremists Being Co-opted by Ukraine's Far Right. So uh, who, who is he? Well, he's a uh, Washington, D.C.-based journalist. He describes himself as focusing on Ukraine and specific issues surrounding the country, such as LGBT and women's rights uh, and, uh, and so on. So uh, that's his background and who he is. Now, I'm not saying by any means that that discredits what his research or what he has published in this report. But David, my question to you is, um, what are your thoughts on this? And, and particularly with respect to as we start to see more and more Ukrainians uh, being removed from that country and being brought into uh, Western countries, the UK and, and EU and in particular, um, and bearing in mind the uh, increasing rhetoric from the UK government of the, the rise of far, white, far right extremist thought in the UK over the last couple of years, what effect do you think that this, this new immigration is going to have on that far right extremist thought? Mm. That's difficult to say because there's a tremendous contradiction here because here you have the West supporting nationalism, um, supporting what was it that nation, national traditionalism um, as a as a political bulwark against both immigration and uh, the destruction of traditional structures of society by you know, postmodern thought. Simultaneously, the British government is also responsible for both the mass immigration and the destruction of traditional structures of um, society by the introduction of postmodern ideas, LGBT, etc. So they're playing both sides against the middle. At what point will everyone involved in this notice they're actually enemies? I'm sure this has to come up at some point. Um, there seems to be a, a great deal of uncertainty as to what everyone actually believes and whose side everyone's on, because so little truth is being told about the whole thing. What will it mean for, um, the, what will the immigration bring to Britain? Well, I would think it, at the very least, it would bring 
uh, a renewed examination of these ideas, which have been rather hounded out to the margins uh, by a very vitriolic campaign by the government and press against anyone who might have traditional views, because he'll be painted or she will be painted as a Nazi. Um, so that's probably got to end. Now, what will fill the void that's made if, if we make the new religion of LGBT, you know, alphabet people and all the rest of it, uh, no longer the only, uh, the only belief system you're allowed to have? Um, will, will we see actual debate? Will we see actual ideas exchanged? I don't think so. Um, I, I think what we'll end up seeing is more suppression of free speech. More, su more suppression of free speech. And of course, you, you must have the correct view. So no better place to turn to than the BBC, which had made this report from a few hours ago. Uh, here's a picture of a young ex-squaddy. And the uh, headline is, I'm under no illusions, says British soldier in Ukraine after comrades killed. I found this to be uh, an incredible article from the BBC. Let's have a read through and see why. Uh, here's AJ Spence. I've labelled him as a mercenary and a paid killer because that's his uh, job now in Ukraine is to kill Russians. He says, I'm under no illusions. You get on with the job in hand. I'm not a war tourist or anything like that. I was quite comfortable back home sitting with my cat. And uh, he's... Uh, been looking at the news coverage of the Russian invasion, and that's apparently spurred him into action. He said it was just too much to watch. You know, it's like I'm asking a firefighter to walk past a burning house and not do anything. It's been pretty heavy work at times. It's not like Iraq, and that was guerrilla warfare situation. This is a conventional war situation against mechanized infantry. Uh, Okay, he realizes that he's into something uh, a lot worse than Iraq. They, and he's talking about two Georgian fighters, were killed by indirect fire. One bled to death, the other was killed instantly. We carried one of them trying to save him while there was heavy shelling around us. Um, I'm under no illusions about risk to my own life. I'm willing to accept that. I'm here to do a job which is to help the Ukrainian people. You just think about stuff like that later and get on with the job in hand. And his job is to kill Russians. So uh, he says that he's had a wonderful uh, response from people in Ukraine. It's a lovely country. And to see the destruction and damage and just the pure hatred that's been thrown against the people here is hard to watch. I grew up in Northern Ireland during the Troubles, so I've got a bit more empathy towards stuff like that. Well, he's got so much empathy that he's joining in to uh, uh, assist the killing. Um, and then the journalist says he surprises me after our interview by sharing a photo of himself dressed in a rather different type of soldier's outfit, holding a sword instead of the automatic rifle now sitting beside him. AJ explains he had previously worked as an extra in Game of Thrones, which was filmed in Northern Ireland. I now start to have some, some pretty severe concerns about this young man because where is his head as he researched the, the war that he's now fighting in? Or is he playing some form of extended video game? But here's the reporter, Emma Vardy. Um, 
she said this in the article, those like AJ who have been placed into the Ukraine's Legion of Foreign Fighters are paid the same as locals, about three to four hundred pounds a month in base pay. There can also be additional pay added on top for those that are deployed to the front during active combat. She's very enthusiastic, Mike, about getting people there to the front line because they can earn more pay. Um, but for now, the International Legion says it is proud of its achievements since forming just over a month ago, and it's advertising on social media for more people to join up. So if we analyze this, what the BBC's message is that people should be proud to be a killer for hire in Ukraine. This is what the BBC is saying here. Get on social media for details as to how, uh, of how to join up. The BBC is going to support you every step of the way because that's what this article is about. Um, but of course, the BBC team are going to stay safe and happy making BBC money reporting on the killing in Ukraine. So, David, before I show you the last uh, part of this uh, segment, I think this is outrageous reporting by the BBC. This is effectively an advert for mercenaries to go to Ukraine. And not the first one, because the last advert for mercenaries to go to the Ukraine wasn't from the BBC, it was from Liz Truss, Foreign Secretary. She said, we've got your back. Sign up now. There won't be any problems. It was walked back a bit, but it's quite clear what the message was. The British government is behind this as well. And it was an advert to say British mercenaries should go to Ukraine. That's going to be viewed positively. This builds on this, this report builds on that message. It's quite clear what it's doing. It's looking to get an international brigade type army into Ukraine to do the fighting or some of the fighting um, right, and, that and we David, can't do with uh, an official British military. And David, that's on top of what we've described earlier in the news, that if we're providing the surveillance systems and the weapons, the munitions, the drones, the, the missiles that are being used to do the killing, now we're putting in the mercenary army on the ground. We are clearly at war with Russia. Well, the journalist doesn't get into the meat of the matter in one sense because she's not exposing what's really happening uh, in this created war in the Ukraine. But can we trust her in her maturity as a journalist? Well, I'm going to say I don't think so. Have a look at this uh, article that was reported from The Mirror a little while ago. A spoof sex video featuring BBC correspondent Ed Emma Vardy has been taken down from social media. The BBC Ireland journalist was reportedly instructed by her bosses to remove the raunchy fundraising clip because it was, quote, inappropriate. Emma, 39, was taking part in a home video collaboration that aimed to raise money for NHS frontline workers. Organised by her boyfriend's football team, the fundraising efforts hoped to contribute to the NHS charities uh, together, together COVID-19 appeal. So, this lady surely does not have the maturity to be let loose in reporting on anything to do with Ukraine. Hmm. We'll don't know leave. what to say. Well, the BBC needs to be stopped, I think, immediately. 
Okay, let's uh, move on. If you like what the UK Column does and you would like to support us, then please head over to community.ukcolumn.org. There are options to help us out there, or you could help us out uh, by picking something up from the uh, UK Column shop, and that would be much appreciated. Uh, and also feel free to share uh, our material that you find on the various platforms. Um, and we should just uh, mention, Brian, at this point, that, uh, of course, the coming weekend is Easter, so uh, we will not be uh, producing UK Column News on uh, Easter Friday or Monday, Good Friday or Easter Monday. Indeed. So we'd just say to our audience, please try and remember, because we're, all, we're always inundated with emails saying, where are you? Uh, that's where we'll be on holiday. Uh, well, just to end the section on Ukraine, we're getting a lot of emails coming in from people who are either Russian or Ukrainian uh, or who are living in the uh, Eastern European states. We've uh, just picked this one out the, uh, for today's news, but we'll do more. I'll read some of it very quickly. Um, I wanted to express my heartfelt appreciation for what you've been doing. I started watching UK Column from the time the war in Ukraine broke out and your broadcasts have really helped me to keep sane. I grew up in Latvia and my fa father was born near Mariupol and I have relatives in the area and so feel closely connected to what's happening there. Today, I was finally able to re-establish contact with my cousin who until very recently had lived there all his life. Up until a few days ago, I didn't know if he was alive or what had happened to any of my relatives there. Then I learned he'd managed to escape from Mariupol on the 2nd of April and reach Russia on the 4th. Today, I was able to talk uh, to him online. I felt deeply affected by what he told me and wanted to share with you some of what I'd learned. Apparently, his flat was destroyed and for the last two and a half weeks, he'd been hiding in a cellar of another house with his friends. He told me that on a number of occasions, he had witnessed Ukrainian military driving in tanks up to residential buildings and destroying the buildings. He said the area was controlled by the, quote, the Nazis, along with various fo foreign mercenaries. I was struck that he called them the Nazis versus the Azov or the Adar battalions, but he simply said that this is what they openly are. He went on to explain how the local population have been living under their control for the last eight years, how the Ukrainian government, starting with Poroshenko, armed them and also how they apparently released various criminals from prisons and sent them to Donbass as well, which meant that the population there has been effectively terrorized for the last eight years. I asked him about some of the tragic events in Mariupol. He told me that he lived near the hospital for pregnant women and actually heard the massive explosion, but didn't see what it was. Later on, some eyewitnesses in the area told him that they saw a bomb being dropped from an airplane. I told him that I heard the scene with pregnant women being evacuated from the hospital was staged. He said he didn't know whether it was staged, but that he knew that the lower floors of the hospital had been occupied by the Nazis, but there might have still been pregnant women on the upper floors. He also told me what had happened at the theatre. As you know, it was reported that the Russian military bombed the theatre despite the word children clearly written on the ground. He told me that the theatre was actually, quote, donated detonated. From, sorry, detonated from the inside deliberately by the Ukrainian military. He also told me that he hadn't seen any Russian soldiers in Mariupol, but saw them once on the outskirts of Mariupol, where they were handing out humanitarian aid and food for free. These are just some of the things I learned 
We've been out of touch with each other for many years until now. And since there are so many speculations about what may or may not have been happening, I wanted to share this information with you because I really value what you do and feel grateful. Uh, well, Mike, we're getting a number of reports in uh, now from people and uh, they don't know each other. They come from very different areas of Eastern Europe. But the message is all saying that what we're being told is not true in the sense that the uh, major Western media is putting across. OK, let's move on to what's still happening around the NHS and vaccines, uh, because none of this has gone away. In fact, it's accelerating under the smokescreen of the Ukrainian war. So if we can bring in um, Debbie Evans. Debbie, thank you very much for joining us today. You are getting um, very, very concerned about what you're seeing in the NHS and around the movement to uh, give particularly the United Nations, well, the World Health Organization, more power to control what happens uh, in any sovereign nation during a pandemic. Just tell us a little bit about what you've been seeing. Oh, good afternoon. And yes, I am very concerned. And this all goes back now to the WHO Pandemic Preparedness Treaty. And I know that we've spoken about this before and that we will devote more time to it in the future. But this treaty is, is something that 194 countries have signed up to, including the United Kingdom. And, you know, people have just voted to leave Europe to regain sovereignty of the United Kingdom. Well, we've effectively given it away, or at least the government have given away those, those rights of sovereignty because the WHO will be able to call a pandemic, a disaster, a natural disaster, whatever they want, any time they want in the blink of an eye, all 194 nations have signed up to it, will have to act in lockstep and close down, lockdown, mandate, medications. It just gives away all of our all of our rights to the WHO, which of course we know are in partnership with the United Nations. So is this the one world government that, that's being rolled in and will affect us directly through this WHO pandemic preparedness treaty? Um, thank you for that, Debbie. And of course, you're not the only uh, person who's now started to get concerned about these uh, uh, supranational laws which are coming through the World Health Organization because some of the recent uh, contribute, contributors to Reiner Fulmick's um, taking of um, evidence and witness statements, um, specialists at law have also been speaking out. You've heard some of these, sorry, you've heard some of these reports. Yes, I have. Dr. Astrid Stuckelberger, Dr. Tess Laurie, uh, World Council for Health have written an open letter. There are many, many people who are warning about this WHO pandemic treaty because it affects literally all of us, all of us. We will all be governed by that organisation. So I would I would urge everyone to listen in to what Dr. Tess Laurie and Dr. Jessica Rose, Dr. Astrid Stuckelberger, um, she's been given plenty of evidence at grand jury and spoken to Reiner Formick. So I would urge everyone to look at that because that's being rolled in very quickly as we speak. OK. And of course, you, you've um, stayed um, looking at what's been happening with the MHRA vaccine adverse reaction data. Can I ask you whether you've yet had a reply to your question about safety from the MHRA? No. 
<laughs> I have had no reply, none whatsoever. I've never received a satisfactory response from anyone um, as of yet that I've asked that question to. So um, very quickly, for people who may be new to the uh, UK columns reporting on this, what was that question to MHRA? What, what, what information were you hoping to get from them? What I, what I want to know is, I mean, how many serious adverse reactions, how many deaths do we need before we're alerted to stop what is going on to stop it and yet we still don't even have an investigation an inquiry anything into these serious adverse reactions so always my question to the mhra has been where is the investigation what are you doing about these serious adverse reactions that are being reported we now have over one and a half million over two thousand deaths all these people that have followed the government narrative and have taken the government's advice to take this vaccine or injection, they're not being given any support and the MHRA are refusing to ask, answer me when I ask them where, what are they doing about it? And how many deaths, how many serious adverse reactions do we need before we stop this? Well, that's a very good question. But of course, something else that's appearing in the wings is a recognition by the government that people are going to be demanding some form of compensation for the fact that they've suffered a vaccine adverse reaction. And you've been investigating, I had never heard of this organisation before, but you've been investigating the NHS Business Services Authority. Let's just bring it up on screen and we'll have a look at a little bit of information about it before I ask you for some comment. Um, so you, you found this organisation, it says, it is an arm's length body of the Department of Health and Social Care. We manage over 35 billion of NHS spend annually, delivering a range of national services to NHS organisation, contractors, patients and the public. Our purpose is to be a catalyst for better health and our vision is to be delivery partner of choice for the NHS. Uh, pop this one on screen. I had a look at the board members uh, it wasn't easy to find out who they they actually were. Normally, if you go on a site, they come up pretty quickly. Maybe that was just me, but I did find uh, board members uh, declared interests. Uh, so here's a list of some of the people. The chair was a lady called Scylla uh, Maisie. Um, we've got non-executive director, Andrew Flanagan and uh, Mark Ellaby. Um, but just to have a look at Scylla, um, I had to go to Network Rail to actually find some information about her. And here she is. And what is her background? Well, her background is with British Airways and running Gatwick. Um, I'm, I, <laughs> I'm lost for words, Mike, as I get into this, because I say, OK, so what does this lady bring to a better NHS? I'm not too sure. I want to find out more about her. Um, here's some more of the team. We've got a Deborah Bailey, Tim Nolan, Alastair McDonald, Patrick. Uh, sorry, I'm not sure how to pronounce that one. McGann. McGann, thank you. Uh, Steve Pink. Uh, what do we know about these people? Just to come back to you, Debbie. This organisation controlling £35 billion of public health money, it's not clear who they are. 
no, it, it isn't. But what we do know is that they are they are the body so that anybody that wants to claim compensation or to claim a vaccine damage payment, any member of the NHS, uh, if they've suffered an injury whilst they've been working, this this organization has loads of functions and I didn't know they existed either. What I do know is that the MHRA yellow cards and the vaccine damage compensation payment are not linked. So if you've if you've submitted a yellow card, it will not automatically translate into any financial remuneration or claim. So people have to jump through hoops. And, and, and you know, you said you found it difficult to find the board members and also on there, it's very difficult to find the serious adverse reaction paperwork that you have to fill out. You have to go into the search bar to look for it because it's not evident on their front page. And it would seem only now, only now are they, um, uh, they've given out a, a contract to a company called Crawford and Company as a loss assessor to look into these claims. But only now, you know, why wasn't all of this set up? And the NHS Business Authority is scrambling now to try and give contracts out to get people to look at serious adverse reactions and the claims. But let's not forget, this is a £120,000 one-off payment. And it's not intended to support somebody uh, for their lifetime. What it's intended to do is just help them out in the interim. So perhaps they want to use, if they're successful and they receive that 120,000, maybe they want to use that for a legal case to claim for wider, the, the, the wider issues. You know, this is a one-off payment and you have to jump through hoops to even be accepted as a likely claim. And we already know that in 2021, AstraZeneca, uh, the effects of AstraZeneca and thrombocytopenia have been linked. So we're now waiting for the MHRA to give further regulation. This is in nearly a year down the line. Right. I mean, right. Sorry, go on, Brian. Debbie, just to in interject there, because you're getting in some really fascinating territory. The MHRA collects vaccine adverse reactions, including deaths. It then tells you and the UK as a whole that it, it doesn't actually have any safety investigation report into those statistics as to whether they are or are not connected to the um, to the vaccinate the COVID vaccinations. But if you've suffered an adverse effect um, and you've put in a yellow card report, the MHRA is not going to give you the first level of protection, which it says it does through pharmacovigilance because it hasn't investigated its own data. They then throw you to what's an effectively an insurance company for a vaccine damage payment scheme. And to reinforce what you were saying, let's bring up uh, a little bit from the Business Services Authority website, uh, because this is what you've got to find. Uh, this is the paragraph that leads you to the claim for a vaccine damage payment. And uh, once you get into that, I've had to make a little video of this because there's so much in the form, but they want to know all about you. It's not so much what happened to you, what were the circumstances of the vaccine adverse reaction? This is as though you've got to be pinned down, you've got to be iris scanned and fingerprinted, date of birth, national insurance, every possible thing so that you can actually fill in the boxes 
as to what vaccination you had. And uh, you'll see on screen in a minute, there's a tiny little box about what the adverse effects were. So this goes on for 14 pages, but as you've said, it runs alongside the fact that the MHRA, the agency responsible for public safety under pharmaceutical products and vaccinations, has no data whatsoever on the safety of vaccines. Um, Debbie, it is incredible. It's, it's absolutely shocking, Brian. It's absolutely shocking. I mean, the vaccine damage payment, the £120,000, what good it's going to do, um, that hasn't been raised since 2007. So, you know, the cost of living and, and 120,000, where does that go? It's not going to support. Oh dear, we've, uh, we've lost her at that critical moment, but the, the uh, nub of the story has come across very We lost Sorry. you, we, we lost you very briefly, Debbie, just, just recap there. Um, I was just recapping really that to say that once you've filled in that big long form, there's no guarantee that your claim will be accepted. It will be assessed. And there is no join up with the MHRA. The MHRA, these people that are suffering from side effects and vaccine damage are still receiving no help, no support, no answers to any questions. And they're now being told they've got to pretty much look online through links upon links to find a form to fill it in, only to be told that maybe it's not going to be accepted. I mean, this there's been nothing put in place for this. And yet we're seeing evidence from Pfizer now that they expected all these serious adverse reactions. I've seen evidence from the FDA. They expected all these adverse reactions. And yet I mean, the MHRA was... expected all these adverse reactions. That's why they spent a million and a half yeah. pounds on this AI system, which apparently has only been used to uh, help people fill in the yellow card reports in the first place. So, so everybody expected it. Exactly, exactly, Mike. And yet there was no structure whatsoever. And now all of these people are at the behest of simply an insurance company, as Brian says, a loss assessor. Yeah. And uh, uh, that company is Crawford and Company, if, if I've got that right. Let's have a look at a very, very short clip uh, where Crawford and Company advertise themselves. Great success is rarely achieved alone. It takes teamwork, hard work, collaboration, commitment. Behind every success is an innovative team with the right tools, the right technology, and the right people, all working together to go farther and faster than has ever been done before. And that's what we do at Crawford. We push these boundaries every day as a team. We disrupt and declutter the most difficult claims handling challenges around the world and in your own backyard. With over 80 years in the industry, our expertise is unmatched. Our people are the best in the business and our commitment to digital innovation sets the industry standard. Together, we're solving the challenges of today and tomorrow. Behind every success is a team 
dedicated people striving to make a difference. That's who we are. That's why we're here. Who's behind you? Just to end that segment, Mike, um, they're an insurance company. They're about making profit out of disaster and suffering. And at the end of the day, protecting whoever the main client is. So they've got a pretty interesting opinion of themselves in that video. Debbie, thank, thank you very much for joining us for that uh, information about the NHS and vaccines. Uh, David, uh, let's come back to you then and COVID. Yes, a couple of uh, things relating to COVID. Here we've got uh, Liz Carr calls on theatres to host face mask only performances. Um, now, uh, she's an actress and she suggested theatres should do this uh, to cater for audiences who still want to wear face masks or to socially distance. Um, now, she said that audiences have mostly abandoned wearing face masks. Amen to that. And Carl suggested venues could offer COVID-safer performances. The theatres should remain accessible even to those of us who have health conditions, she told the BBC. So you can see how she's been affected by the fear. Two years of fear and lockdown, she's now afraid to go out normally. Um, she's used a wheelchair since she was seven. She's one of the most high-profile disabled actors in the UK. Now, um, to give you the antidote to this, uh, we have a quote here from uh, the cat in the hat, who says, uh, I will not wear it. I will not wear it on my face. I will not wear it any place. I will not wear it on my chin. I will not wear it to get in. I will not wear it on my ear. I will not wear it out of fear. I will not wear your stupid mask. I will not wear it. So please don't ask. I thought that was rather lovely. Um, next item on COVID here, um, we've got uh, Dr. Robert Malone. Uh, this is an extract from Twitter. There's a little bit at the bottom here that Twitter has put on. Uh, a red warning triangle, it says misleading. Learn why health officials consider COVID-19 vaccines safe for most people. Find out more. Uh, that's actually changed. Originally, uh, you couldn't retweet or send that on. You could look at it, but you couldn't actually move it on Twitter. That's changed. So someone's obviously been doing something legal in the background. So you can, can now share this. And he's talking about a very important issue that Twitter are trying to silence and uh, suppress here. But we have some video. And we have lots of scientific data now that are demonstrating that these vaccines, particularly RNA vaccines, are damaging T-cell responses. So when you hear this talk about these vaccines causing AIDS, people think when they hear AIDS, they hear HIV. No, the vaccines aren't causing you to be infected with the HIV virus. They're causing a form of acquired immunodeficiency syndrome. That's what AIDS stands for, acquired immunodeficiency syndrome, AIDS. And these vaccines are causing a form of AIDS, and we can see it by the frequent herpes and other uh, Epstein-Barr, infectious one, etc. These are the things that often are driving the post-vaccination syndrome, where people really feel crummy for a long period of time afterwards, low energy and all that. Often it's the EBV that's come up. That's what I'm hearing from frontline docs all over the world. And so to take another dose of something that isn't going to 
provide protection against infection, may actually make it more likely that you get infected, is associated with adverse events like myocarditis, is associated with T-cell suppression, is associated with reactivation of latent DNA viruses, may be associated with some increased risk of cancers, um, may affect, obviously causes blood clotting problems. That's very clear. You know, who cares about blood clotting problems? Well, everybody should care about it. And blood clotting is one of those things in medicine that can affect every single organ in your body. You know, a blood clot in your brain, we have a word for that. We call it a stroke. You don't want to have a stroke, okay? It's a bad thing. You don't want to have damage to your heart. You don't want to have a blood clot form in your pelvis and thrown up into your lungs, okay? These are bad things. I thought that was an important thing, an important um, outline uh, uh, from Dr. Malone there. And I was particularly disappointed that uh, Twitter were trying to suppress it. Okay, and that takes us on to uh, the New York Post. Oh, uh, Debbie will love this one. Dr. Fauci says, uh, it's now up to Americans to assess their own COVID-19 risk. Um, it's, it's now up to, up to them to make their own medical risk assessments. This is wonderful. In a world where the regulators will not or cannot provide us with copies of their quantitative risk assessments. Dr. Fauci is now saying that we should just do our own. Uh, quote, it's not going to be eradicated, it's, go it's not going to be eliminated. Uh, and what's going to happen is we're going to see that each individual is going to have to make their own calculation of the amount of risk they want to take. Debbie, do you have any comments? Oh, I do. <laughs> I really do. Um, it, it kind of goes hand in hand with what Sajid Javid said in a recent tweet, which was, Basically, in the UK, we've got to learn to live with COVID. And because we've lifted all the restrictions, we are moving forward with this. However, and I'm sure there's the equivalent in, in America, in the UK, we're still going ahead with a COVID pass delivery. You know, the contract was given to a, a company called uh, Net Company, I believe. So they're still going ahead with why would we need a COVID passport? If we're going to assess our own risk, I'm guessing everything's gone away. Or is that what they're leading us to believe when really things are happening underneath that we're not meant to know about? Uh, uh, that's a very good question, Debbie. And I might have something. Well, in fact, we might as well just come straight to it because uh, let's let's look at this. First of all, this is a, an organization called Net Company Limited. Uh, now, they're a UK branch of a, a multinational organization. But uh, as you can see from the graphic on screen here, this is the first uh, thing that you see on their website, bringing hospital care to patients at home. This is something that Debbie was talking about last week uh, with the notion of uh, virtual, uh, virtual wards uh, and effectively you're thrown out of hospital at the earliest convenience and you're expected to re rehabilitate at home. So why am I bringing Net Company on screen? Because we're not really talking about this issue. Well, thanks to the viewer that sent us this, but uh, I just wanted to make the point that the government on the uh, 5th of April uh, issued a contract to that company uh, for COVID pass, as a COVID pass delivery partner. Um, so this is for IT services, consulting, software development, internet and support. It's worth between six and a half million pounds and 18 million pounds. Uh, and as you can see, if we bring this up, Net Company UK Limited uh, has been given that contract. Um, but uh, that's not the only COVID related contract uh, that's been 
uh, released in the last uh, several weeks. Uh, so let's bring Circle on screen. Of course, Circle came into the headlines in 2013. Uh, this is the biggest company that nobody's ever heard of, so-called. Uh, and if you remember, they uh, one of the things they do is they run uh, ankle tags uh, for people that have been released on parole and so on. So uh, Circle agrees to pay £68.5 million after tagging scandal. They were claiming money from the government for uh, managing tags for people that were dead uh, and also for people that were uh, still in prison. Um, but don't worry, uh, you can be done by the serious fraud office and not have to worry about it because you'll still get government contracts. And so uh, in, uh, on the 18th of March, this contract was uh, released or this published provision of a contact center services for the single service center circle contract. Now that's uh, worth 211.8 million pounds. Um, so, you know, a bit of, bit of fraud doesn't really uh, do you too much damage on a long-term basis. Um, and so they have been awarded that contract. So anyway, the, the point here is, uh, uh, Debbie, that uh, COVID hasn't gone anywhere. It isn't going to go anywhere. Uh, Bill Gates, as you know, uh, over the last number of weeks is, is continuing to warning, warn over uh, the future pandemic, Pandemic X or whatever they're going to call it. Um, so, but all the infrastructure is being put in place. And you were talking about a few minutes ago, uh, this uh, global uh, treaty that all the, every country has signed up to, the infrastructure is being put in place to uh, manage that. Yeah, ab absolutely. Everything we, you know, everybody's walking around thinking that uh, this is all stopped and gone, gone away. No, it hasn't. The infrastructure is being built as we speak, and it it's everywhere. It's it's in plain sight. So clearly, we're hearing rumours now of avian flu. If you go to the Gavi page, they've got a whole list of what the next pandemic is going to be. And as you say, combine that with the WHO Pandemic Preparedness Treaty, they're obviously getting ready for something. So we all need to be watching it very carefully. Yeah. Um, well, unfortunately, we're more or less out of time here. Yeah. But uh, David, we do have uh, some final slides. Yes, here we have a cartoon, a change of fortunes. Uh... Boris gets a boost. He's sitting on the shoulders of Zelensky with a missile saying to Ukraine, love from the UK. So his political star is rising. Uh, unfortunately, the Chancellor, Squishy Rishi, he's been, been burdened down and squashed by the weight of his wife's um, tax problems and enormous wealth. Um, so isn't it strange what a week does in politics? But also that left me thinking, is that really what our political um, system is reduced to the popularity polls of this type? Of course, the answer is, yes, it is. Uh, the second one here, Bob's Cartoons, uh, once again joining us here on the final slides. And this is uh, what goes on in the government approved mind. And it says, I've got COVID again, masks work, women don't exist, Slava Ukraini. My government loves me. Freedom is selfish. I hate myself. Everything's Putin's fault. There is a climate emergency. Trust the science. Trademark. Uh, I've got COVID again. Get boosted now. Um, uh, heart attacks are normal. And G abortion. So that's what you're meant to be thinking, according to the government. And uh, to finish with a medical one here, um, uh, the doctor here says the third leech isn't working. Better give him another booster leech. <laughs> Yes, okay. That one's pretty accurate. 
Okay, well, Debbie, David, thank you very much for joining us. We're out of time with today's UK Column News. We will have a, uh, an extra coming up shortly. So if you're a paid up subscriber of UK Column, come in and join us. And uh, we'll just say a huge thank you to people who are communicating with us. There's an unprecedented level of emails and mail coming in. We've had some wonderful cards uh, thanking us for what we're doing and wishing us a happy Easter. So thank you for those. Um, but we're always going to say back to you, uh, send us the cards if you like. They're gratefully received. But of course, send those letters, emails, cards to your representatives to challenge them on what they are and are not doing. So if you haven't written to your MP ever before, or you haven't written to your MP recently, think about what questions you can raise to put them under a little bit of appropriate pressure so that they do their job as an elected representative. We'll leave it there. Thanks very much for joining us. Bye-bye.